0: So, for Father's Day, what, uh, what better place to go than to talk about Father Abraham? And yeah, I know he had many sons, and, and many sons had Father Abraham, and uh, I'm not going to sing the song for you. Father Abraham uh, is uh, perhaps, among humans, the most revered father uh, who's ever lived, to the Jews, he is the founding father of their special relationship to God. To Christians, he is the father of all who believe. And even to Muslims, Abraham is a link in the chain of prophets, prophets from Adam to Muhammad. He is revered, uh, he is revered. Chapter 12, which was just read for us, is a chapter that really sort of sets us off on this journey that we are looking at as we as we study the life of Abraham, and uh, and and the journey itself is is initiated by God's call. It seems to have maybe gotten off to a little bit of an uncertain start, uh, as we might read in the previous verses in chapter eleven. It seemed like Abram. Uh, and family had left Ur and seemed to be parked out in, in Haran after having started the journey. They're parked out there with his father for some time. Uh, we are told that in another account in the New Testament, which, which sort of hints to us as we might be making our way through the story that, that perhaps here is yet another story that's headed in the same direction as the previous stories of Genesis of everything sort of moving forward and then stopping and going backward. But this time it's different, because now we see in in Genesis chapter twelve that God is going to intervene God's going to intervene. When we think of intervention, you, you think of you know by definition we're talking about inter, interfering with the outcome or the course or a condition, or a process to, to prevent harm. And, and sometimes we, we use the term in reference to intervening in the life of an al- alcoholic or a drug addict, if you'll, interfering, because we see where that's going to take them. We see the disaster. We see the destruction that will perhaps lead to their death. Genesis 3 through 11 makes it very clear that the human race seems to be caught in a cycle of rebellion against God. It appears, if you will, almost this addictive existence of resistance to God that's only going to lead to human destruction again and again. But then in Genesis 12, God intervenes. He intervenes in human history. And he does so by intervening in a family of idol worshipers. It's Joshua who sometime later... Uh, recounts for us that, that, that the family of Terah, Abraham's father, they were, they were idol worshipers. And the man that God zeroes in on specifically is a man named Abram. Whether or not Abram himself worshipped idols, we're not told, but he, he came from a family that did. But God intervenes in his life. Why does God intervene in, in Abram's life? And, you know, and, and with such an idolatrous background, what is it that ever prompted Abram to respond? What, whatever, whatever was it that, that prompted and if you will, drew this faith out of Abram? Because there humanly would be no reason to think that it's there. Maybe he's in a midlife crisis. We're told in chapter 12 that he was 75 years old he set out from Haran, uh, in that era of human history, he's, uh, he's about middle-aged uh, as they go, and it seems that he's getting settled down in his, in his ways, and uh, Abram, at this point, there's some prosperity, uh, but he's childless, and this is just sort of the way it is for this rather, at this stage, unremarkable man. Was it, was it conscience, if you will, was, there, was, there, was conscience beginning to be pricked on the part of Abraham? I was just reading this morning in my quiet time in, in, in the book of Psalms, where the, where the psalmist talks about, even in the night hours, I'm there in my bed and my conscience is, is working, it's speaking, it's prompting, it's poking, it's prodding. Romans, the book of Romans talks about the, the role of conscience in, in guiding and revealing Maybe, maybe his conscience had been poking away at him. Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring God's glory and the night sky revealing God's knowledge. Romans 1 talks about God's existence being clearly seen in creation, though the rebel heart chooses to worship the creation rather than the creator. While Abraham's family, no doubt, worshiped the moon god, which was the big god of Of the Chaldeans. Archaeology has confirmed that and shown that to us. So while his family worshiped the moon, maybe Abram was wondering I wonder who made the moon. I wonder who made the moon. Perhaps he had some faint memories of an old story that had been passed down over generations, this, this faint story that, that maybe was obscured a bit but was still there of, of creation and, if you will, fall and calamity that came into the world and, 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 this, and this flood and, and this promise of a deliverer that would one day come. Maybe there were some faint memories of, of that. But what we do know beyond doubt is that God speaks. God comes to Abraham, and God speaks to him. And God appears to him. This is a significant movement in the story because certainly in the first 11 chapters, God has been speaking. This is the first time we're told in the Bible that God appears. God appears to him. That's the grace of God. God is intervening in the life of an aging, wealthy, childless Mesopotamian man whose family worships idols. But God's grace. And this changes the natural course of human history. It breaks the cycle that we've read of in the first 11 chapters. Because you see, the rest of the story of the Bible actually flows from these verses. This journey that begins in Mesopotamia it actually doesn't end in Canaan. Rather, it ends in heaven. For we read in the book of the Revelation of a new people who are from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are gathered around the throne of a descendant of Abraham, called in Revelation the Lamb, who we know to be Jesus Christ, And there they are singing the song of the redeemed for all eternity. This is a pivotal chapter. The rest of the story is going to flow from here. Humanity desperately needed an intervention. And God did it. You know, the fact of the matter is, every one of us, at some point in our lives, we need intervention from God. Every single one of us. Left to ourselves, we're going to be caught in cycles that are not going to take us to God. Rather, they are patterns that will keep us away from him. Sometimes we don't realize it because life seems pretty good. We're basically decent people. We, We found our way, if you will, to be a good person, living in a bad world, doing good things for people, being moral. But we are as lost as lost can be. And tragedies don't even know it or won't even admit it. And then there's some who are painfully aware of it, caught in addictive cycles of sin, addictive cycles that, that are bringing destruction to, to themselves and to their families, very aware of it, not able to break out of it. See, sin is, is that kind of a control in our lives, and every single one of us, every single one of us at some point in our lives needs an intervention from God. And God's ready to do that. Well, as God is, is moving here, he intervenes, but as the story sort of unfolds here, we find that God proposes. God proposes. In those, in those verses two and three, he, he makes some promises to, to Abraham. God just, God just shows up and begins to speak, and he makes promises. I, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. So he makes promises, but he does set the conditions. He sets the conditions. Verse 1 Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. It's a proposal. Now, I'm not using the word proposal in the sense of a suggestion, that God's making a suggestion to Abraham. I'm using the word proposal in the sense of how we use it in marriage. On a fall day in 1985 at the Huntington Beach in Bay Village, I got down on one knee and I opened a little box with a diamond ring inside of it and I asked Deb to marry me. I made a proposal, and what I was saying to her was this, I want you. I want our lives to be united from this day forward, and I want us together to produce what God wants us to produce together. That's what I mean when I say here in chapter 12, when I talk about God's proposal. You see, to provide the promised deliverer, God is going to unite himself with humanity through a person. And so through Abraham, God was going to create a new nation. He was going to create a new family. He was going to create a new people for his name. And then about 2,000 years later, A descendant of Abraham, a virgin named Mary, conceived and bore a son named Jesus. God in human flesh. God united with humanity. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. You know, in in God's call, you you hear, if you will, just maybe some you hear some of the language of marriage some of the some of the very early foundational language of marriage because if you go back to the very beginning of genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 we read this that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one that verse is quoted in the new testament by jesus and by paul with reference to marriage. And so like like a covenant of marriage, God covenants with Abraham. God says to Abraham, leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, and come with me, and here's what I will do. So God sets his gracious love upon Abram, and out of all the inhabitants of the earth at that time, God comes to Abram. He says, Abram, I want you. I want you. This is God's grace. It's God's grace. In that sense, he he comes to you as a groom seeking a bride and says, I want you. I want you. I didn't hear it put in those words, but, but that message came to me through my parents. Through my dad as he opened the word of God, and through my mom as there at her side she opened the scriptures and told me of, of God's love, but my need for forgiveness of my own sin. The gift of everlasting life through the finished work of Christ. That if I would call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Savior, he would save me. That was, that was a way of saying to me, Mark, God wants you. He wants you. For some of you, that proposal came while you were listening to a sermon. For others of you, it came as someone stopped by your house, your room, and they shared the gospel with you. For some of you, that, that proposal maybe came in the midst of a, of a crisis and, you, and your world seemed to be falling apart. Or maybe it came after you had been pursuing so many other things coming up empty every time, but then you were captivated by the call of God. I want you. And that's how God comes to Abram. God said to him, I will. And he made these promises. And many times, and understandably so, we refer to this covenant that God made with Abram as unconditional and very true. There were not other conditions, except one, and the one condition was that he needed to respond. He needed to respond. He needed to leave. If God was going to do this for Abram, Abraham had to leave. If Deb hadn't said yes to my proposal, well, our history would have been histories, and very different than what it is. She had to make the choice to leave father and mother and to come and let our lives be joined together. And so, as the chapter continues, we find that the journey commences then with Abram's response, and we read that. It was read for us this morning down in verses four through nine. He, he responds first with obedience. He says, he says through his actions, he says yes, because God said leave, and we're told that Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. We're told again that he departed from Haran. And we're told that he took Sarai, Lot, their possessions, and the people, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. Did you get the message? Abram departed. He left. He did what God told him to do. He said yes. You see, obedience to God is evidence of faith in God. You You can say all you want about having faith in God. The proof of that is seen in our obedience to God. Because when you obey God, you are demonstrating trust in God, which is the essence of faith. We read this of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 9a. It says, by faith, what did Abraham do? He obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. He's a city dweller. <laughs> He's going to go to live, live the rest of his life in tents. He obeyed. He, he'd probably heard of Canaan. He says, Well, you know, he didn't know where he was going. Well, he, he'd probably heard of Canaan because ancient trade routes went through it, but he'd never seen it. And at best, the only, the only faint. A recollection he would have is something he might have heard of a traveler who'd come up through that little strip of land and, and headed to the east and come up into his, his territory, but he'd never been there. He heads out for this place that he'd had no ch- chance to check out. I mean, that's what we do when we're buying cars, it's what we do when we're buying property. We go and we get them inspected and we, we check them out to make sure this is going to be a good deal. I don't want to buy a lemon, I don't want to buy a house that's going to fall apart in five years and so we go and we inspect and then we make our decision and Abraham had none of that I mean how in the world could he compare his present life in Ur and then in Haran to what God was offering to see if God was giving him a good deal he only had God's promise but that was enough and he trusted God he responded with obedience. And then the text describes to us here the fact that he responded with worship. He, he makes his way. He, so he and his caravan, they, they make their way and, and they, they arrive at the land and they're up in the north and, and they come from the north down through the land. They make their way down through the land. You know what they, you know what they discover as they make their way down through this land? Here's this, here's this tribal caravan of, of Abraham moving through the land and what they discovered is that they were surrounded by idolatry. He arrives in a foreign land, and as he makes his way through the land, he finds it's filled with Canaanites who were idolaters. Now, this seems an ironic twist. I mean, Abraham left behind a family of idol worshipers only to arrive in a land filled with idol worshipers. Abram's not going to exactly fit in in this new land. But what does he do as he, as he makes his way down through this land we're told that as he makes his way down, he comes to Shechem. It's a, it's a city that was you know a, a very central location. It's gonna be a very significant city um, throughout the Old Testament. But he comes to Shechem, located there in, in, in the center portion of that land at the terebinth tree of Morah. P- perhaps, it, perhaps it's perhaps been suggested that this was a shrine signifying the stronghold of the false gods of, of the land. And there, there at that place, The Lord appears to Abram and promises to to give that land to his descendants. And we're told that Abram builds an altar to the Lord. Why an altar? Well, Abram's growing in his knowledge of God, but apparently he knew enough about God to know that sacrifice was how you approached God. Sacrifice. The sacrifice on an altar. Yes, a blood sacrifice on an altar. That's how sinners approach a holy God. Sinners do not approach a holy God with their good works because we're sinners. You approach God having had the penalty cared for, one life for another, the life of the animal substituted for the sinner, the life that is in the blood representing one life given for another. Abraham knew enough to know, this is how I approach this God who has called me. And so he he makes a sacrifice as he builds an altar. And then we're told he travels a little farther. He goes a little farther south near Bethel where he builds another altar. And there he calls upon the name of the Lord. He declares that his faith is in the Lord, that the Lord is his God. So what's he doing as he is making his way down through this land? Well, he's marking the territory for God. Turf gangs will use graffiti to mark their territory. And so they will use graffiti to advertise their status, their presence, their power. They will use graffiti to challenge rivals, to dare them, if you will, to come on their turf. Its purpose, really, of that graffiti is to glorify the gang and to communicate messages Abram is marking out the land of promise. By faith, he believed that God would keep his promise when God said to your descendants, I will give this land. And so these altars are a signal that this land belongs to God. Abraham himself was not going to inherit the land. His descendants would. But the promise is a future That Abram wouldn't personally experience, but he believed God. And so these altars signal that a witness for God is now present in the land of Canaan. These altars serve as a warning to the idolaters, but they also signal hope. Because remember, God said to Abram, you will be a blessing, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed The presence of Abraham represents the potential of blessing to any and all who come in contact with him. The spiritual descendants of Abraham are here on this earth to be a blessing on this earth. You see, we are not just here to have a presence on this earth. We are here to be a blessing. We are not here just to bide our time to just wait it out until Jesus comes. We are here to be a blessing. It doesn't necessarily mean that that you have to physically uh, relocate like Abraham did. Rather, rather we, we create an alternate community by faith, where we seek to live by God's word, where we live as a Christian family. A community, men, where we lead our families by faith, as Abraham did. We marry by faith. We raise children by faith. We accept singleness by faith if that is God's choice. The atmosphere of our homes and the fragrance of our lives, our books, our entertainment, our vacations, our weekly cycle of work and rest, our gatherings, our unity and diversity, these are all different from the world because they're marked by faith. Marked by faith. By God's grace, we've come away from the world while not physically leaving our actual homes. We are children of Abraham in Northfield. We are children of Abraham in Macedonia. We are children of Abraham in the surrounding communities. We live here by faith for Jesus Christ. We are here so that our faith might bless this community, that we might be an influence for Jesus Christ. To be a blessing to those that are around us is to have influence upon them In the name of Jesus Christ and for the glory of Christ. Well, in this opening account of the beginning of his journey, there's one more event. And it reminds us that there are unexpected things on this journey of faith. This little account that's tucked in here to chapter 12, if you will, keeps the journey real to our experience. Because we find in verses 10 through 20 that the journey was threatened by a crisis. So he journeys through the land, uh, Abram, as he comes in. He he journeys through the land. He finds it's filled with Canaanites. And and so he's not able to find a place to settle because you don't just land your tribal group in the midst of some other occupied territory. So they keep moving. They keep moving and farther farther south south until they come to what's called the Negev. I think it's kind of like southwest southwest Texas. Pretty dry and pretty arid. Pretty sparsely populated. So you know what? Er, uh, Abram found a place to... He found a place to land his tribe, and they settled down. But then there's a crisis that arises, and it's caused by a severe famine. I mean, they've just arrived in in this land. Think about it. And their their existence is threatened there in this land. This may have been a new experience for, for Abram. Where he came from, they had these mighty rivers that didn't dry up, the Tigris and the Euphrates. So their agriculture could be sustained by these mighty rivers. Not in Canaan. They were dependent on the rainfall, and he's already down in a pretty dry area, and there is no food, and their survival is threatened. This seems to be maybe a rather unexpected development. Have you ever stepped out in faith, and things seem to go wrong? And what you thought would happen didn't happen the way you thought it happened? If you will, by sight and by sense, Abraham could have concluded he made a big mistake. And though we're not told that he came to that conclusion, one thing is for certain. Hunger told him he needed to go somewhere to find food. Makes complete sense. However, if God's promise is true, then Abraham's got to hang around for a while. <laughs> it can't be he's going to be dying Yet. Because there's still a lot that God's going to do in his life. And and if this promise is true, then certainly God has to provide. But this crisis crisis comes and and it's like, hey, we're all going to die. You know, crises come and sometimes we spring into action and, and we do what common sense tells us to do, reminding us that there is a fine line between trusting God and taking things into our own hands. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. There's a line. It's part of the struggle of walking by faith. In crises, God's promise seems to shrink and become smaller than the crisis. You ever been there? Well, as the story unfolds, the absence of any consultation with God seems to matter. Not made a a big deal of here, but there's no consultation with God as Abraham takes his family and heads to Egypt to to dwell there. Uh, Not the same word as in end of chapter 11. He's clearly planning on heading back as soon as he can. But here's the problem. The land of promise is Canaan. But now he's in Egypt. And it raises the question that Abraham seems to have not been certain about. Could God have provided in Canaan? He seems not sure yet. He trusts this God, but but not sure. You know, f- faith in God is tested all the time. All the time. Every crisis that comes your way is going to be a test of your faith. Every temptation that faces you. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Not only that, as the story goes on, the crisis is compounded by fear. I mean, Fear I thinking, fear is to, is to faith like a hot dryer is to a wool sweater. You ever done that accidentally? You know, this nice expensive wool sweater, it gets, it gets washed, you throw it in the dryer, and it comes out like for a baby doll. Fear will do that to your faith. Abram fears for his life, and we read this bizarre account of this plan that he comes up you. Hey, you know, he's married to, to a beautiful woman. Egyptians are going to want you, you know, and they're going to want you, so they're going to kill me. And it makes perfect sense. They can't kill me because God made the promise to me. So if I'm not around, this whole thing falls apart. So we've got to come up with a way for me to survive this thing. So Sarah, you're going to say you're my sister, half-truth. You're going to say you're my sister. And when the Egyptians see you and they want you, you know, they won't come after me. It sounds pretty bizarre to us, but unforeseen to Abram. Not only was it the Egyptians that saw her, the officials from the king's household, Pharaoh saw her before you know it. Sarai is in the house of Pharaoh. This, this brilliant fear, fear-based plan to save his life lands Sarai in Pharaoh's harem and puts the plan of God in jeopardy. Again, it begs the question, could not God protect Abram from the plans and the schemes of man? We sang about that just a few moments ago. Well, that's where we thank God for the I will promises of verses two and three because the promise maker steps in to be the promise protector. <laughs> to keep the promise alive, despite Abram's ill-advised actions. See, it's God's unwavering faithfulness that stabilizes our wavering faith. Abram loses his way and things get a bit mixed up. Instead of Abraham being the blessing to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's blessing Abraham with all these material possessions. And instead of Abraham bringing blessing to Pharaoh, (laughs) Abram's actions bring a plague on Pharaoh and his household. You read down through these verses, and then I'm reminded of what we saw back in Romans chapter 4 that says Abram did not waver in faith. But it sure seems like he, he does here, doesn't it? You see, in the story of the Bible, Abram is charting new territory of what it means to live by faith. I mean, what do we do? We, we, we can open a Bible, and we can read the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. Abram had none of that. Besides, the story wasn't done. It's still unfolding. He didn't have a dad who walked by faith that he could turn to. He didn't have a pastor from whom he could seek counsel. He didn't have a church to come around him or a small group to support him. He had no books, no videos, no podcasts, and no examples to follow of anyone who'd done what God was calling him to do. All he had were maybe these fuzzy stories handed down orally over the generations, And then these these encounters that we've read of in these verses. A couple months ago, I had to go for a meeting down to a, a church in Lancaster, Ohio. I really hadn't been to this church before, so I needed to find my way. So what I did is I opened up my phone. I plugged in the address for the church. I pushed a button that said, Get Directions. And then I started up my car, buckled myself in, and I pushed the button, Go, And for the next, uh, what does it say? For the next two hours and 37 minutes, uh, my phone talked to me and told me exactly what I needed to do, where I needed to turn, what exits I needed to take. And you know what? I arrived on time and I didn't get lost. Pretty handy. Pretty snazzy. I especially love the last statement. You have arrived. (laughs) It's so, it's so ego building. So we make it there. We make it there. Contrast that to the the journey of Lewis and Clark back in the 1800s from St. Louis to the Pacific coast. Little was known about what lay between those two locations. The journey lasted over two years, covered about 8,000 miles, in which they dealt with harsh weather, very unforgiving terrain, treacherous waters. Can you imagine being in the boat and saying, Hey, do you see some mist down the way there? Uh, Think we should keep going? Did you hear that thunder? Can you imagine being on those rivers not knowing? They, They suffered injuries. There was hunger, dehydration, disease, exhaustion, and encounters with more than 50 Native American tribes, both friendly and hostile. They traveled some uncharted areas of North America where they had no maps, but drew them as they went. Abraham's journey was like Lewis and Clark, not like Google Maps. It's easy to critique Abram's lapses of faith. His delay in Haran, His sojourn in Egypt. What's up with that? Come on, man. You know better. Well, <laughs> he, he can't Google the thing. Life of faith is like this. In our info age, you know, we, we've, we've kind of programmed the walk of faith into apps Accessible with the touch of an icon. There's the answer as clear as day. But life throws us the unexpected. Like Abram moving into a land filled with idolaters and facing famine. We think faith will land us here, our dream. (laughs) But it actually takes us there, into what seems like a nightmare. Because the journey of faith is more like the Lewis and Clark expedition than we realize. Yes, we have God's word. And yes, we have the Holy Spirit. More than what Abraham had. But we're still figuring out the life of faith every day, at every crossroads, in every crisis, and in the face of every temptation. Yes, Abraham messed up in Egypt. But he's blazing the trail that all who believe are going to follow. He's learning. He's getting to know this God, and as he did, his faith grew so much that a day came when there was nothing he would withhold from God. Nothing. Deb has been sorting through my parents' albums. We have all of that at our house, going through photo albums and, and all of that. And um, she came across a, an, an article that my mom wrote that was published in 2003 in a magazine called Good Old Days. And uh, the title of the article was Going Out and Coming In. And she said this about her dad, my grandfather. This is, this is, my, this is my grandfather. This is her dad. She she wrote about the itinerant life of her family when she was young. Between the ages of 3 and 13, she lived in 13 different houses across Wisconsin, South Dakota, and Montana. Her dad was a coal porter. That, That means he's someone who sold religious books door to door. He had left the farming business to do that. At the height of the Great Depression, he couldn't support his family. So he went to manage a creamery for his cousin. About a year later, because of the Depression, the creamery went bankrupt. And he was transferred to, an age, uh, to, a, uh, to a cream collection station until that job was phased out. He then went to work for the WPA, which is one of the public works agencies created by, the, by Roosevelt's New Deal. My mom wrote this about her dad. She said this, Oftentimes, before we began our journey, Papa would gather us around and then pray and read Psalm 121. The last two verses say this. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. It was another reminder to me of the heritage I have received. You see, a grandfather I never knew, who traveled to places I've never been and experienced hardships I've never faced, journeyed that unexpected journey with a confidence in God that had a lasting influence upon his daughter, my mother. It's Father's Day. Dad, are you leading your family on this journey of faith? Is your home marked as territory that belongs to God, not the world? Do you gather your family to hear the word of God, to pray, to seek the will of God, This is the journey of faith. Are you leading your family on that journey? I wonder this morning, where are you? Where are you in this journey? Some of you may be stuck in here hanging out or holding on. Some of you may be sojourning in Egypt, just scheming to survive and succeed. Neither of those is the life of faith. So where are you? Needing God's intervention, ask Him. On the brink of accepting God's proposal, say yes. Obeying God in that tough area of your life, surrender it. Worshiping like like Job when he lost everything, worshipped God and blessed His name. Facing a crisis, hold on to God. You see, wherever you find yourself this morning, let the next step of your journey be one of faith in God. Help us, Father, I pray.